One of the things that we have tried to emphasize all the way through this study is the importance of us not coming to the place to where all this stuff that we're learning about the book of Revelation as we're seeing all of these things unfold and we're beginning to understand what a lot of people think is a difficult book of the Bible. One of the things we've tried to guard ourselves against is coming to this book and simply allowing it to satisfy our intellectual curiosities. There's always going to be a danger of that when we come to a, a book like this. And so we don't want to ever get to the point to where we're just coming here and we're just loving gathering information. What we should have seen by this point, I mean, we're 63 weeks along in this, this study, and there ought to be something that's happening to us. The Bible says that if we're really looking for the Lord's coming, it's going to have a purifying effect on our lives. And you know what? If in the last 63 weeks of your life you haven't seen a growing purity, a growing desire for holiness in your life, you're really not getting what you need to get out of this book. In the last 63 weeks, what should have been happening as we begin to go through all of these things and we see these events unfold, what ought to be happening to us is we ought to be coming to the point to where we are loving his appearing. Paul talked about that in his, his last letter to Timothy, and he talked about the fact that he was ready to be offered, looking forward to receiving the crown of righteousness that he knew was waiting for him, and along with everybody else who was loving his appearing. Now I want to ask you this morning, whether you've been in this study or, or not, let me just ask you, do you really want the Lord to come back? I mean, is that really the desire of your heart? And I want to show you an interesting passage that's not in the book of Revelation, but we'll use as a stepping stone before we get there this morning. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> and in verses 16 through 20, Jesus is giving to us here uh, the parable of the Great Supper. And, and what he says in this passage is that there was a certain man who was who was going to host this, this major supper, and he's, he sent out the word. He's invited all kinds of people to come to this, this supper. And when he had finally come to the point where he had gotten everything prepared, what he did is he sent out his servant to tell everybody, come, for all things are now ready. And what you begin to see happening in this, this story, you see at the end of verse 17, the servant gives that invitation, come, for all things are now ready. And... And what you begin to see is, one by one, people begin to send back word that, you know, I really like to come, but, you know, there's just some extenuating circumstances in my life right now that's causing a conflict in my schedule. The first guy that you see in verse 18, he, he couldn't come to the supper, because check it out, he, he bought a piece of land, and he said, and I've got to go look at it, you know? You ever get something new and you just step back and you just look at it? You know that new car and you just can't? I mean, you, you look out the window, man. There, that's my ride right there, you know? And we're all stoked about that. It, he couldn't come because he was relishing in his riches. He was relishing in his riches. Hey, you know, suppers are real cool and all, but you see, this guy's needs... We're all being met, and he would have rather spent his time all by himself 
with all his stuff rather than stuffing his face with a bunch of folks. His needs were being met. He couldn't come because he was relishing in his riches. Jesus said in verse 19 that the other guy couldn't come because he bought five yoke of oxen and he needed to prove them. You see, what was happening with this guy is he was climbing in his career. I mean, hey, five yoke of oxen, y'all, is a pretty good deal. I mean, you're moving along pretty good in business, you know. Uh, you're on your way when you got five yoke of oxen to becoming somebody. So, you know, I, I really like to come, but, you know, I'm kind of climbing my career right now. And, and then Jesus said there was another guy in verse 20, and he couldn't come because he married a wife. You see, he couldn't come because he was focusing on his family. And that was before the days of Dobson. He was focusing on his family. And you know, <clears throat> you, begin to, you begin to look at that, that parable, and you begin to look at all of the excuses that these people are, are giving. Well, I'd like to do that, but you know, I've kind of got this little deal I'm working o- over here. You know what? You begin to look at that thing. What you begin to find out is people haven't really changed too much through the years, have they? Because those are the same basic things that keep most Christians from wanting the Lord to come back. I mean, hey, listen, I'm telling you, we're living at the time at the end of verse 17 when the servant is about ready to give the news, come, for all things are ready. And what we see going on all around us today is you got some people, and oh, they want to go to heaven because it it does (laughs) beat the alternative. You know what I'm saying? So, oh yeah, we want to go to heaven, but what's happening to them is, is they're relishing in their riches. And heaven isn't really all that appealing to them because the truth is they've got a little bit of heaven on earth right here that they're working and things are going so smooth for them. I mean, life is good. We've got a beautiful house and pretty style and ride and pretty nice clothes and got all these toys and oh, he- heaven's real cool and I want to go there someday, but you know, all these things right down here, they're, these are mine. So yeah, they want the Lord to come back, but there's a preoccupation because they're relishing in their riches. And then there's other people, and yeah, they want to go to heaven, but but right now, they're busy climbing in their career, and you see business is is good, and and just a few more details, and probably just a few more months, and boy, it may not be heaven, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to be sitting on top of the world. And a lot of folks living in our time just before the coming of the Lord, really don't want him to come because it's going to mess up business. And I'm just about to become somebody on this earth, so man, don't mess me up with heaven. And then there are others, and yeah, they want to go to heaven, but right now they're focusing on their family. And you know how it goes if you're in high school or you're a single and what you're doing is, is, is you're saying, well, you know, I want the Lord to come back and all that stuff, but, but not until I get married. And then if you're a young couple, well, yeah, I want the Lord to come back, but not until we have kids. And then if you've got kids and, and life's going pretty good for you and you're enjoying your kids and life is good, man, you don't want the Lord to come back to mess up this, this wonderful family you got working here. I mean, this is going pretty good, you know. I mean, we have a big time together, and man, I just can't wait to have the grandkids. Man, I, this is, oh man, I, I hope, I want the Lord to come, but I, just not right now. 
You tracking with me? And you know what, what we really learned from Luke chapter 14? Now, and check this out. There's a great lesson of life to learn here, folks. The things that are really keeping us from wanting the Lord to come back aren't God's adversaries. They're God's blessings. Do you see that? All this stuff that we're, we're talking about here. I mean, pieces of ground, you know, and houses and, and clothes and cars. You know what those are, folks? Those are God's blessings. And, and having a good job and the opportunity for advancement. Hey, if you got a job like that, that's wonderful. That's a blessing of God. And, and having a family and having great family relationships. Man, oh man, there's, there's not a, I don't think there's a greater blessing down here on this earth than that. But the fact is, spouses and, and children, though they're great blessings, they make lousy gods. And, and though jobs are, are real wonderful, and God intended us to work, men, and it's a blessing to have a job, but boy, a job is a whole lot of better blessing than it is a God and, and all of this stuff that he's blessed us with these riches hey, they're wonderful but man they in a time of need buddy they make really lousy gods and, and we've got to be so careful folks in the midst of God's goodness to us that we don't fall in love with the gifts instead of the giver we don't come to the point where we exalt the blessing instead of the blesser. That we're not bowing to the, to the riches instead of bowing to their source and, and make more of the riches than we do the relationship that we have with the one who has allowed us to have this stuff. You see, these are the things that are going to keep us. The same exact stuff that we see in Luke chapter 14, same exact stuff that's going to keep us from wanting the Lord to come back and somebody else says well not me buddy I do want the Lord to come back and that's that's great I salute you but let me ask you why why do you want the Lord to come back you see it's the flip-flop of this you got a lot of people and they want the Lord to come back because you know what man I'm telling you my life is so messed up my kids drive me nuts and and give me absolute fits my marriage stinks I hate my job. We just barely get by from week to week. And buddy, do I want the Lord to come back? It's real nice. Just doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, does it? And then there's other people who, who, who are just so anxiously awaiting for the Lord to come. And, and, and I've got to be real careful when we talk about this. You want the Lord to come back because of who's there. You lost a husband. You lost a kid. And, and, and I, hey, I'm, I'm with you. That's, that's real cool. If I lost my wife or my kids, I'd really be looking forward to seeing them. But you've got to watch out. Wanting to go to heaven because we love our kids and we love our spouse. But we don't love Jesus. And not anticipating that. You know, when I first got saved, I was a, you know, a rock and roller, you know. And 
my parents had all this stash of, of quartet music, you know. So, you know, you go from this rock and roll thing, the only Christian music I knew anything about was this stuff, you know. You know, the guy's doing all that deal. Really a blessing to you, you know, when that bass just starts working down. You know, you, oh yeah, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, man. That is. But, you know, I, I, I started growing up on, on that stuff, you know, after I got saved and... And you know, what the, you know what that stuff is singing about? Now, if you like quartet music, just zone out for just a sec, okay? And don't get ticked off because there's a good message in here somewhere. But you know what they're singing about? I mean, invariably, they're going to be talking about the, the gates of pearl and the walls of jasper and the streets of gold and, you know, the heartache and the trouble and the strife that we're going to get out of here one of these days. And, you know, they're working all of those, those, those kind of things. Or, and if it's not that stuff, they're talking about going to see mom and them. You know? And mama and my, my hard-working daddy, and, you know, we're all sitting there wiping them. has absolutely nothing to do with what heaven is all about. It ain't about all that trash. And, and, and hey, walls of jasper and gates of pearl and all that stuff, it is trash compared to the person of heaven. And that's what this, this whole thing is, is about. We talked about this wedding that we, we had here yesterday. It was, it was a kick, man, I'm telling you. It was, it was beautiful. It, it, it was wonderful. I want you to just you know, pretend with me. Let's go back to Friday night. Okay, it's the rehearsal night, you know, and, and Josh... You know, he's wanting to hear how this babe feels about him, you know. And so he says, Heidi, what is it that's making you so excited about this wedding? She says, well, you know, I've always wanted my own house. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, you, you know how when I was, you know, you're being a little girl and stuff, you'd be playing house and all that, you know. And man, I'm telling you, it's just kind of like I'm feeling like I'm that little girl again. I'm getting ready to go play house. You know, Josh is going, oh. <laughs> and, but there's something else. You know, uh, you know my, my family, we, we live down in Tusky. And, and, and Tusky's all right, but, you know, I've always wanted to live in Philly. And so, man, I'm just, oh, I'm so stoked about this wedding because I'm going to start living in Philly. And, and you know what, Josh, something else. I've, I've just always wanted to have kids. And man, I'm looking forward to marriage because then it's legal, you know? And you know what, Josh probably would have gotten the idea on Friday night that maybe she loved the idea of being married more than loving him and wanting to be married to him. And I'm going through all this today because in the passage that we're dealing with in Revelation chapter 11, it's all about the king coming in his kingdom. It's the most glorious truth in all of the word of God. And hopefully by the time we're done today, hopefully you'll see that. The most incredible truth in all of the word of God, but the thing that is concerning me is at this time when he's about to come there's just so few people even those of us that name his name 
that really give one flip about what that event means to him. The only thing that seems to matter nowadays is what it means to us for him to come. And I, I hope that by the time we get through this this morning, that God has put a, a something in your heart that's longing for him to come in his kingdom. And this morning we'll see in Revelation chapter 11 the crowning of the Messiah. The crowning of the Messiah. And you'll notice on your, on your study sheet that the first thing that we see here in this passage is the announcement of heaven. The announcement of heaven in verses 14 and, and 15 of Revelation chapter 11. And first of all, we're going to see this morning the announcement of the third woe. The third woe. That's letter A on your outline. And look at verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, if you have not been here in our study, that just sounds like a whole bunch of nothing, really. But let me ask you to just go back to Revelation chapter 5, and let's just dial all of us in here on what he's really talking about here. Chapter 5, in verse 1, you see that we're introduced to a sealed book, a, a book that was sealed with seven seals. And then in chapter 6, and you'll notice in verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ begins to open those seals, and as he does, he begins to bring us through the tribulation period for the first of four times in the book of Revelation. In other words, as these seals are being opened, what is happening is you are seeing the progression that is bringing you through the tribulation period for the first of four times in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, what happens is he opens six of the seals, and by the time he gets through the sixth seal, we've already come through the tribulation period that first time. But then you'll notice in chapter 8, in verse 1, he opens the seventh seal. And what we learn here is that contained within that seventh seal were seven angels sounding seven trumpets. And you can see on your study sheet there, I've tried to, to just get you away to, to be able to see that. You see on that first line, you see the, the seven seals. The six of them are opened. We come through the tribulation for the first time. The seventh seal is that which contains the seven angels who are sounding seven trumpets. And coming through the sounding of the seven trumpets, he brings us through the tribulation period for the second time. And in chapter 8, what happens is the first four trumpets sound. And again, he's bringing us through that tribulation period, and the things that he's showing us through the sounding of those first four trumpets are just absolutely horrendous. But then after the, the fourth trumpet, something happens in verse 13. John says in chapter 8, he says, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. And what he does is he tells us here, he says, you think that those first four trumpets were horrendous. He says, now you, you really haven't seen anything yet because these last three trumpets are just so absolutely mind-boggling and incredible 
that God even gives them their own little name. They are woes. So understand this, and you can see it on your study sheet there. The last three trumpets, trumpet number five, six, and seven, are the woes. Woe number one, two, and three. Okay, so now with that in mind, now let's go back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14, and we'll see where we are here. He says in verse 14, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Okay, so he's saying, now we've come through that second woe, and now here comes that last one. So in verse 14, we hear the announcement of the third woe. Then in verse 15, we hear the announcement of the heavenly voices. The announcement of the heavenly voices. Verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven. Now just stop there for a second. Now, you'll remember back in chapter 10, and why don't you turn back there, chapter 10, and verse 7, you'll remember that our Lord gave us a warning or a foreshadowing of what would take place when that seventh trumpet sounded. And he said here in chapter 10 and verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. Okay, now that's what we're seeing right over there in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. He says over there, the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven. So he's letting us know back here in chapter 10 and verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And you'll remember that Peter explained to us back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that God's servants that he's talking about here in verse 7, his servants of the Old Testament, those prophets of the, the Old Testament, what Peter is talking about over there, he says they wrote about the coming of the Lord. But what Peter explains to us is though they were the ones who actually re received and recorded the prophecy, there was something that remained a mystery to them. And what the mystery to those Old Testament prophets, the servants of God, the thing that was so mysterious to them is how Christ would be both a suffering servant and a conquering king. It, it just, Peter said, it just didn't compute to them. Peter said that they, they searched into that. They looked diligently into that, trying to figure it out. But he said, you know what? They never could figure that thing out. And you see, what they didn't understand is that his coming would be in two different advents. Two different advents that we now know would be separated by a, a time interval of 2,000 years. And again, we can see that perfectly, but they couldn't. We can see it perfectly because of the time that we're living in. It was a mystery to them, and what that mystery was... It was the mystery of the church. They couldn't see that in there. They're, they're prophesying about this suffering servant, and in the same sentence sometimes, he is a conquering king. And it just, they couldn't figure it out, and they couldn't see that in there, God had written in the mystery that is called the church, a 2,000-year period in there. And, and what this verse is here in chapter 10 and verse 7, it's a forewarning. And what he says here is when that, that seventh 
and final trumpet sounds, the tribulation period will be over. And the time interval that was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets is also going to be over because when that seventh trumpet sounds, the suffering servant will assume his position as the conquering king. And look back in verses, verse 1 of this, this same chapter. And what, what he does here is he describes the conquering king coming in his kingdom. And John said in, in verse 1 that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ with the clouds of glory surrounding him as a, as a robe. And he says here that he had all the brightness and, and radiance of the sun upon his face. And, and, and as the sun passes through those clouds of glory, what he says is it forms a crown of a rainbow upon his head. He, he says at the end of verse 1 that his feet were as, as pillars and they were burning with all the raging, roaring power of a, of a furnace. And what he says here is he comes down from heaven and he stakes his claim on what is his. The Bible says in Psalm 24 and verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and his right foot stands upon the sea, and his left foot stands upon the land. And it says that he takes the word of God, which is the title deed of the earth, and he puts the word of God in one hand. He takes his other hand and he reaches it up toward heaven and he vows that the time of his judgment will come at the sounding of that seventh trumpet and that there will no longer be any time that passes before the suffering servant has become the conquering king. And so God had already forewarned all of heaven back in chapter 10 about what would happen when that seventh trumpet sounded. Jesus said, when you hear that seventh trumpet sound, know this. Know that the time interval is over. And I'm coming back to stake my claim on what's mine. I'm coming back in all the splendor and majesty of glory. And that's why, back in chapter 11 now, in verse 15, that's why it says... That when the seventh angel sounded, there were great voices in heaven. You see, they understand what's, what's coming. The, the inhabitants of heaven know now what the sounding of that seventh trumpet means. And listen, there is such an anticipation once that thing sounds. There is such an excitement in them. There is such an enthusiasm in them that when they hear that seventh trumpet... Their own voices begin to literally rock heaven. And I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but if you're a, if you're a football fan and you've got, you got this team that you just, I mean, you just absolutely love. You follow this team everywhere, man. This is your team. And they're having the season of all seasons, man. And they come down, they, they wipe everybody out. They start moving into the little playoff games, you know. And man, I mean, the crowd's going nuts. And then, then they come to the championship game. And I mean... Oh, man, all week long, you've just been kind of waiting for this thing to, to, to happen. So you get to the stadium, and, you know, they're doing the warming up thing and, and all of this. And finally, the announcer comes on, Would you please stand for our national anthem? And everybody, it gets like this. And then here it goes. The band starts the little deal, and people start singing. You know, we're going with this thing. 
And, and, and you know, it's just kind of cruising through, and then you come down to that last line. And the home of the... And if you've been, you know what's getting ready to happen, right? You never hear brave. Because, I mean, wow, everybody is, I mean, nothing's happened yet. But, oh, buddy, the anticipation, the excitement. I mean, they're already clapping, they're already screaming, they're already jumping up and down. And, I mean, your heart's pounding and you got goosebumps and all of that stuff. And you know what? That seventh trumpet blast. And to these people, because they already know what chapter 10 has told them that this is going to mean. That seventh trumpet blast, and man, it's just like the last note of the national anthem. And all of heaven starts going nuts. They just start absolutely going wild, anticipating what's getting ready to happen. And, you know, I don't know if glorified bodies get goosebumps or not. But, buddy, if we do, we're going to have them when that seventh trumpet sounds. And, and you know, I, I want you to think about this. And I've tried to remind you of this all the way through our study of the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is a different kind of book of prophecy than any of the other books in the Bible. Because John lets us know here that what he was writing about in the book of Revelation was not a, a vision that he had of future events. He's not writing about a dream that he had that would be fulfilled somewhere down the road. He told us back in chapter 1 that what happened to him when he received the revelation, what he says is that the Spirit of God had actually picked him up off of the Isle of Patmos and had catapulted him ahead to the time of the day of the Lord. In other words, to the time of the second coming of Christ. And what he's letting us know here is that what he wrote down were the things that he was actually seeing things that he was actually hearing, things that he was experiencing. And, and we saw even at the beginning of chapter 11, sometimes even things that he's participating in. These things that are recorded in this book were things that were unfolding right before his very eyes, and as they're happening, he's just writing them down. And you see, what has happened to him is God had allowed him to transcend time so that he actually... Uh, though he actually lived in 95 A.D., he was witnessing actual events that haven't actually even happened yet. You tracking with that? If so, you got a great mind, okay? Some of you are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, there's no way. You mean he saw in the present tense things that would be a little over 1900 years in the future? That's exactly what I'm saying. You say, that's crazy, man. No, that's God. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, it lets you know something about God. It, he is the one which was, past tense, and which is, present tense, and is to come future tense. And we say, okay, yeah, that, that's cool. Yeah, God in three tenses, but you've got to understand. He is the past and the present and the future all at the same time because he transcends time. And so since he transcends time, folks, it's no big trip for God to let John come into that dimension and let him witness and experience the future 
in the present tense. But the reason I'm going through all, all of that is that since we would have been raptured, the, the rapture takes place in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and verse 1. And so since the rapture took place in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, by the time the seventh trumpet sounds, how long will we, will we have been in heaven, folks? We would have been there for seven years. So do you realize what that means? What, what that means is that one of the great voices that John heard making all that racket in heaven when that seventh trumpet sounded was my voice. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, one of those great voices in verse 15 is your voice. I mean, now that is just an absolute trip, man. John was hearing us get all stoked about the second coming of Christ. And here we are, those great voices, along with the angels, along with the four beasts, and along with all of the other hosts of heaven. And we make this great sound because we know he's getting ready to come back. And he's going to do his business. He's going to settle the score. And man, all of heaven is absolutely stoked. And notice in the second part of verse 15, what all of those great voices in heaven were announcing. And this is Roman numeral 2 on your outline. They're announcing the arrival of the kingdom. They're announcing the arrival of of the kingdom. John says that seventh angel sounded and all at once every being in heaven with a, a great voice or a loud voice begins to declare the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, the most monumental statement, in, in my opinion, in all of the Word of God, right there. But let's make sure that we understand what he's actually talking about here when he's talking about the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, you see, there's a lot of Christians, a lot of people, a lot of groups that go by the name of Christian today who are teaching that the kingdom is already here, now. And the kingdom is spreading and folks now, now listen this is not just some minor little group that I'm talking about I'm talking about the majority of Christianity today teaches this the kingdom is really here right now and it hasn't quite come to completion but it's spreading and you see our job as Christians is to make this earth a better place to live and when we finally brought peace on earth and goodwill toward men, then Jesus is going to come out of heaven and he will rule and reign in the kingdom that we set up for him. Now, now folks, I want you to just think with me about some things here. Man has been at this thing now for 6,000 years. And listen... We're not one day closer to peace on earth and goodwill toward men than the day when Cain thumped Abel in Genesis chapter 4. I mean, not, not one day closer. And listen, if it's up to us to bring the kingdom in, folks, we're about 10 trillion millenniums away from it ever happening because according to the Bible, 
bringing the kingdom in isn't just as easy as winning the whole world to Christ. And you know how easy that is, right? It's not as easy as just winning the world to Christ. According to what you see in Isaiah chapter 11, if you're going to bring the kingdom in, you know what you've got to do? You've got you to gotta somehow stop dogs from hating cats. And, and somehow you've got to keep cats from killing birds, and you've got to make vegetarians out of lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and all that kind of a deal. And if, if you're going to bring the kingdom in, somehow you've got to get to the place to where you can get poisonous snakes to be the little playthings of kids. And then you just sit over the, you know, play with them. That's what happens when the kingdom is here. And on top of that, somehow you're going to have to get men's bodies so that they don't die. You see what I'm talking about? This is absolutely ludicrous to think that we're going to bring the kingdom in? You know, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it or not, but with all of the advances of science and technology, I mean, utilizing the most brilliant minds of the last 6,000 years, and you see, the, this generation has the last generation to feed off of on this stuff. So we've been at this generation after generation after generation for the last 6,000 years, and do you realize, folks, that the death rate compared to the birth rate is the same as it was 6,000 years ago, the day that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. For every one person who is born, one dies. And the one who dies is ultimately the one who was born back here. We're not, it's not getting any better. And you know, we, we talk about all of the scientific and technological advances that we've had in the last 100 years and, and you know we flatter ourselves because of all of these accomplishments and, and you know of all people I mean we're living in the information age and all of that stuff but folks listen with all of our so-called advancements there hasn't been one thing that has brought us one step closer to bringing the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in the only advancements that we've made in the last 100 years are those advancements that are going to bring in the kingdom of the Antichrist. Have you ever thought about that? The only advancements we've had are communication and transportation. And check it out. That's exactly what he's going to use to pull the whole world together politically, economically, and religiously. So, no, we ain't bringing no kingdom in. That's terrible English, but it's great theology. You see, folks, the Lord Jesus Christ isn't sitting around up in heaven today twiddling his thumbs, waiting on me and you and the scientists and the, or the theologians or the National Council of Churches or the World Council of Churches or the Moral Majority or the Promise Keepers or First Baptist Church or anybody else, for that matter, to bring the kingdom in. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come when he busts out of heaven, just like it says in Revelation chapter 19, and he comes down out of heaven and he finally touches down on the Mount of Olives, and when he gets off of that white horse, what the Bible teaches is he's going to have the head of the Antichrist under his feet, and he's going to cast that sucker into the bottomless pit, and then he's going to ride into the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to take his seat on the throne of David, and he is going to rule as Israel's king over all the Gentile nations of the world, and that's when the kingdom will come. When he sets up 
his own kingdom and that's what verse 15 is talking about when it says the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ because check it out folks when God placed Adam on this planet in Genesis chapter 1 he gave to him dominion over all of the earth and he commanded him to subdue it now again we, we talked about the fact that the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof but when God created Adam the Lord gave Adam a copy of the title deed of the earth and the earth was placed into his possession but when Adam sinned in the garden the copy of that title deed of the earth came into Satan's possession and you see that's why three times alone in the Gospel of John Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world that's why Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air that's why 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 calls him the God of this world and that's why in Matthew chapter 4 and let me ask you to turn back there if you would Matthew chapter 4 and I want you to understand the context of what we're dealing with here Jesus has just been baptized at the end of chapter 3 and he's about to begin his his public ministry but before he does he goes up to Mount Sinai and he enters into a 40-day fast and you can see in verse 1 the reason for it I mean the Spirit of God has directed him to do it and check this out the reason for it is so that he could be tempted by the devil and in what we find in this passage is the devil tempts the Lord Jesus Christ here just like he does with all of us with the only three plays that he's got yo the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and you see the reason for the temptation the reason the spirit wants him to go and and face this temptation is you'll remember what it is that makes him our sympathetic high priest you remember what it is it's the fact that he was in all points what tempted like as we are yet without sin and I want you to drop down to verse 8 and see how the devil tries to tempt him here again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain watch this now and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and check this out and saith unto him all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me and boy I remember in the early days of my Christian life I'd read that and I'd think no pun intended who in the devil does this guy think he is I mean who, who is the devil to offer the kingdoms of this world to the creator of those kingdoms who is he to offer these kingdoms to, to the king? But I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't refute the fact that those kingdoms were Satan's to offer. And the reason that he doesn't refute it here, folks, is because they were his. Those were his kingdoms. They had come into his possession through the fall. And this morning, folks, 
Understand this. The devil runs all of the kingdoms of this world. He's the one who is the head of the United Nations. He's the one who's in charge of Great Britain and Germany and France and India, the Philippines, the Vatican, Australia, wherever you want to talk, and every kingdom in the world. And please don't kid yourself into thinking that he's not the head of the kingdom of the United States of America as well. And he's trying to strike up a deal with the Lord in verse 8, where he's really saying to him, listen, you know, we can bypass this whole dying on the cross thing to pay for man's sin so you can take back the kingdoms of this world. We can bypass all of that if you'll just now fall down and, and worship me. In other words, you know, I can give you the glory without the cross. I can give you the crown without the suffering. And Jesus says, nothing doing I'll do it the Father's way. I'll get the kingdoms of this world in His time. And when I do, I won't be bowing at your feet. I'll have you under my feet and I'll crush your stinking head. Now that's in, in the Greek there. <laughs> and folks, that's going to happen when the seventh trumpet sounds announcing the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I want you to just get this in your mind, folks. Not, 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 just think about this in light of what we're talking about. For 6,000 years, the kingdoms of this world have been in the possession and under the dominion of another king. King Lucifer, if you will. Satan. And that's why 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says that the whole world... Do you know what it says? The whole world lieth in wickedness. But at this point in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, you can go back there now, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, the Lord Jesus Christ, after 6,000 years, He takes over what is rightfully His. He takes over what rightfully belongs to Him. And after all these years, Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, is going to be fulfilled. Do you remember it? Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And you remember when that was fulfilled? That was fulfilled in his first coming, right? But you see, this is what, this is what Peter was talking about. Isaiah went from making that statement that was fulfilled in his first coming, and he goes right on and it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Was that fulfilled in his first coming? Folks, listen, there was never a time in his first coming when any government was ever set upon his shoulder. Nor has it been set upon his shoulder in the last 2,000 years, nor will it be until his second coming. But when he comes in his kingdom, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, Isaiah went on in the very next verse, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, and he said this, listen, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth for even forever and ever and I love the way that Isaiah ends the thing out he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will perform this. He's saying, buddy, you can, you can bank on this. This is something that the governments of this world coming upon the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. God's saying, you can bank on this. This is something I'm zealous about. This is something that is going to happen. And folks, that, that event is what the entire book of Revelation is all about. It, what the book of Revelation, folks, is all about. It's all about Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. It's all about the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about the day of the Lord. It's all about the second coming of Christ. You see, what we've seen is this is the book of the throne. This is the book that is all about the king and his rule. What's interesting is in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, though as Herod acknowledged he was born king of the Jews, check this out, in his first coming, it was never a time in his old time on, on, the, on the earth for 33 years, there was never a time when he ever sat on a throne. He went from being born in a stable to having no place to lay his head to being nailed on a cross. But buddy, after all of that that you see in the Word of God, you come to this last book of the Bible and the word throne appears 40 times. Because you see, that's where God has been moving through the whole rest of this Bible to put His Son the word king, kingdom, or, or some form of, of the word is found in the book of Revelation at least 25 times. The words rule, power, authority are found 30, at least 37 times. It's the theme of, of the whole book. The theme of the whole book of Revelation is to show the Lord Jesus Christ as the sovereign of the universe, enthroned as the king over all of the kingdoms of the world. And you see, that's why in the book of Revelation... Out of the 22 chapters in this book, do you realize that what God did in this book is He reserved 14 chapters right in the very heart of this book, from chapter 6 to chapter 19. He reserved that whole space to bring you four times through the tribulation period. You know why He brought you four times? Through the tribulation period? Because each time the tribulation period ends with what event? The second coming of Christ. And you see, he brought you through that four times. Four times through the second coming of Christ because he's trying to show you this is the theme of this book. It's the second coming of Christ. And he brings us through it four times. He brought us through it four times, as many of you know, because he brought us four times through the first coming of Christ in what we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Bible's consistent come to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and he's going to bring you through four accounts of the second coming of Christ, because it's the theme of the book of Revelation. But not only that, the second coming of Christ, and what we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, folks, listen, this is the theme of every dimension of existence it is the theme of every dimension of existence. And I, I purposely did not put human existence because it's bigger than that. Every dimension of existence has this 
as its theme. First of all, what we're talking about here is the theme of the Bible. It is the theme of the Bible. We've talked about this a lot. I'll take just a a second to talk about this. Listen, Listen very carefully. Some of you... You have a difficult time understanding the Bible, and the reason that you have a difficult time understanding the Bible is you don't understand what the theme of the book is. You don't know what the author is trying to say to you. The author of this book is God, and there is a major theme that runs all the way through it. If you were to ask most Christians today, what is the theme of the Bible? You know what they're going to do? It's just like what we were talking about at the beginning this morning. They're going to somehow get that focus on them. Most people think that the theme of the Bible is all about salvation. They think it's about the cross. They think it's about the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I'm not trying to minimize our salvation, the cross, the blood, or anything like that. But that is not the theme of the book. Now, those things mean all the world to me. To me, there'll never be a day like that day that Jesus Christ took my sin. There'll never be a day like the day when I understood my sin and I called upon His name and the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed me from all sin. Man, that was the greatest day, the absolute greatest day in my life. I'm not trying to minimize that. But what this book is all about is it's all about a throne. It's all about a kingdom. It's all about a king sitting on a throne receiving glory. And what you find is when the Bible opens, it opens with a struggle over a throne. And when you see the Bible end, it ends with somebody sitting on a throne. And everything in between there, folks, is all about who's going to get on that throne. That's the whole theme of that book. God's day, the day of the Lord is the day when His Son comes into Jerusalem sits on that throne, the throne of David his father, and every knee bows before that king, and every tongue confesses that he is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the King of kings. That's the day that God's waiting for. And it's the theme of this entire book. But not only is it the theme of the Bible, it's also the theme of Bible preaching. And turn with me just real quick to the book of Acts. Some of you have never seen this, and you need to... You need to, to get this, or you'll, you'll really struggle with placing the Bible. You're, you're going to get yourself as the theme of that thing if you're not careful. And what we find here is not only is it the theme of the book of Revelation, not only is it the theme of the Bible, but it is the theme of Bible preaching. Peter is, is preaching here in, in Acts chapter 3, and he's preaching to Jews, and look at what he says in verse 19. He says, Repent ye therefore... And be converted, did I mess y'all up? Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. And that is that time when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at His second coming. Now watch this. Which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. 
What God is telling you here is that all the way from the beginning of time, ever since there's been anybody who has ever been a voice for God and has proclaimed a message from God, they've all had one theme that has run through them, and that is the second coming of Christ. They may not have all preached alike. I'm sure they all had different personalities. They didn't look alike. They didn't dress alike. Most of them didn't even live in the same era. But one thing they all had in common is when they opened their mouth, They were talking about the event that God has set his heart on, that event, that time, when Jesus Christ finally gets the glory that he deserves. Turn over real quick to the book of Jude. Right before the the book of Revelation, in the book of Jude, and look at verse 14. Jude verse 14. It says, And Enoch also, and just in case you wouldn't take the time to go back and and look to see when Enoch lived, he lets you know when he lived. He says he was the seventh from Adam. He prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with hmm, ten thousands of his saints. Folks, Do you understand what the Bible says Enoch is preaching about? He's preaching about the coming of the Lord, not the first coming. He's preaching about the second coming of Christ when he comes with his saints. The seventh from Adam, thousands of years before the first coming of Christ, he says, you know what, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to take the kingdoms, buddy. It's been the theme of Bible preaching all the way through. And if you go back and you just start checking it out, man... Go listen to Isaiah when he preaches. Listen to what he's talking about. He's talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Listen to what Jeremiah is preaching about. It's the day of the Lord. Listen to what Joel's preaching about. It's the day of the Lord. Listen to what Amos and Zechariah are preaching about. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord. But not only is it the theme of the book of Revelation and the theme of the Bible and the theme of Bible preaching, but it's also the theme of creation. I'll have to do this real quick, okay? Now, now, now listen up, okay? It's the theme of creation. Is this fitting in the notes there? Okay. I don't have y'all's study sheet up here. It's the theme of creation. Creation In, in John chapter 9, Jesus made a monumental statement. You've got to check it out. He says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So for 33 years, it was light on this planet. Okay, But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, he left, right? So as long as he was in the world, he was the light of the world. So what happened, spiritually speaking, when he left in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9? It got dark. And you know what you find out? We are living right now in a biblical nighttime. Check it out in the book of Romans. The night is far spent. The 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're children of the day. We're not the children of the night, though we're living in the darkness, we're not children of the darkness. You see, as long as he's in the world, he's the light of the world. He leads. And if you go check it out sometime in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, you know what it says? It says that now he's got us here shining forth as lights. Now, now check it out. He used the exact wording he wanted there. 
we don't have any light of our own. We simply reflect the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now does that sounding like anything in creation that you've ever heard? Something that when it's up, it makes it light, it makes it daytime. And then it goes down and it gets dark, and then there's something that reflects the light of the sun. Okay? The moon. And in the book of Job, Job says, the moon shineth not. And you see, check it out, guys. God's been trying to show you something through creation. He's like the sun, in fact. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, you know what it says? It says the day of the Lord is coming, the second coming of Christ. And you know what it says? And the sun of righteousness will rise. You know how it's spelled there? The capital S-U-N. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings when he comes on the day of the Lord, the second coming. You know what? The theme of creation is that event when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in his kingdom. And I figured it out. We've basically been in existence for 6,000 years in human existence. And a biblical year is 360 days. So check this out, guys. For the last 2,160,000 days, you know what God's been doing? Every single day, He paints you a picture of the sun rising with healing in His wings when His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes in His kingdom. And most of us are just merrily going through life, not realizing God has rented out the billboard of space to preach a message to us every single day. The sun's coming. The sun's coming. And this dark planet is going to get awful light. It's the theme of creation. And if you go check it out sometime in the book of Romans chapter 8, you know what it says? It says that all of creation groans. All of creation is groaning. You know why? It says they're awaiting something. They're awaiting the full manifestation of the sons of God. Creation does. And God just every day. 2,160,000 days. Preaching, man. Preaching. The sun's coming and it's going to be daytime. The day of the Lord. He's coming, y'all. He's coming. He's coming. But not only is it the theme of the book of Revelation, the theme of the Bible, the theme of Bible preaching, the theme of creation, it's also the theme of prayer. And Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the disciples listening to him pray over there. And they, he gets all done. And they said, you know what? And, and I'm paraphrasing here. You know what? After listening to you pray... You need to teach us to pray. And he says, oh, okay, when you pray, pray like this. And he talks about coming to God, recognizing our relationship with him as our father. Recognizing that he's not like an earthly father. He is a father that is in heaven. 
and we come to Him and we spend time when we pray, hallowing His name. And here comes first request of prayer, the theme of prayer. I pray for Your kingdom to come. That time when Your will will be done as it is in heaven. And guys, the reason that we really don't pray the way that we should is Jesus taught us in the Gospel of John that the reason we pray is for the glory of God. Listen. Okay, now listen real careful. The reason we pray is for the glory of God. And listen. Until you want Jesus to come in His kingdom, you'll never pray right. Because He won't be glorified until He comes in His kingdom. And you know what He's saying? When you come to pray, I want to make sure that your focus is not on yourself. Because you remember, we always turn the tables to put the spotlight on us. And He says, now I'm trying to help you here. The only time that I'm going to receive glory on this planet is when I've come in my kingdom and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Folks, today, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, on Sunday, the day that we set aside for worship, His name will be blasphemed, His name will be defamed, His name will be drugged through the mud by billions and billions of people. There's still billions of people on this planet who don't even know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't have an absolute clue about anything that's going to happen or what Jesus, who Jesus is or what He did, and they're separated from a relationship from, with, with Him. And then there's the Christians on the planet. And oh yeah, they're bringing Him glory, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And, and you see, He's trying to teach us, listen, you get in your heart in prayer a longing for when He comes in His kingdom, when He finally gets the glory that He deserves. And when you're praying about that, Lord, I long for that time when You come in Your kingdom. And you see, this is, what, this, is, this is what Paul was talking about when he was talking about loving His appearing, having a longing in your heart for Him to get the glory that is rightfully His, that He deserves, but He won't get until He comes in His kingdom. And you see... What that does, when we start getting His kingdom in view and understanding that's when He's glorified, then we're in a great position to pray because the fact is, folks, we're all very selfish people. And we, even when we pray, we pray for things that will satisfy self, things that will gratify self, Things that will glorify self. Oh God, I want your power on my life. Because then I'll really be somebody when I've got that power. He says, listen, when you pray, the theme of prayer is glory. And if you're ever going to get that thing of glory straight, you better get something in your heart for that kingdom when he finally gets the glory that he deserves. So not only is it the theme of the book of Revelation, not only is it the theme of the Bible, not only is it the theme of Bible preaching, not only is it the theme of creation, not only is it the theme of praying, but it's also the theme of salvation. It's all about a kingdom 
guys, and listen, some of you are here this morning, separated from the God of this universe who loves you desperately. But you know what? You know what's happening? A lot of you, you know the whole deal. You know and you believe who Jesus is. You believe that he died on the cross. You believe he was buried. You believe he rose again the third day. But you've never been saved. Because you see, the real issue of salvation is all about a kingdom. Somebody's going to sit on the throne of your life. And some of you have set yourself as the throne of your kingdom, the kingdom of you. And you see, the whole theme of salvation is when another king comes in and replaces somebody on that throne. And that somebody on that throne is self. It's us. And if you're going to be saved, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be an exchange. You humble yourself. You climb off of that throne. And you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I've been sitting my big fat self there all these years. And I understand now, you're the king. I understand. You paid the price for my sin on the cross. And in light of the way that you love me, I willfully, willingly humble myself at your feet. And I get down off of that throne. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's what it's all about. You know what, it, you know what, you know what happens when you get saved? The kingdom comes in you. And for the first time in your life, you're able to carry out His will on earth as it's being carried out in heaven. You see, this thing is the theme of salvation. It's the theme of every dimension of existence. God's been screaming this thing out, but you know what? All of that doesn't really mean a hill of beans unless it's the theme of your existence, of every dimension of your existence. And I want to ask you, those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, listen, this is where we started. Is His glory, the King getting the glory that He deserves, is that the theme of every dimension of your life? Is that what you live for? Is that why you go through your day? Is that what you're thinking about as you go through your day? Lord, I'm going to go through this life, but I've got my eyes on another kingdom. I'm longing for a day. It's not tomorrow when the, the, the kids graduate. It's not tomorrow when we have babies. It's not, Lord, I'm, I'm longing for that day when you get the glory that you deserve. So if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen, that's why God brought you here today. To let you know there is a king, a God who loves you, who wants you to be a part of his kingdom, a part of his family. And he's done everything to allow you to do that. He died himself on a cross and was buried, rose again the third day, shed his blood so that your sin could be removed, so that you could have a relationship with him and be a part of his family and his kingdom. 
And today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, in just a second we're going to be dismissed. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room waiting for you. If you've got questions, if you would like to talk to somebody, if you're a lady, we'll get a lady to talk with you. If you're a man, we'll get a man to talk with you. A young person, we'll have somebody that can, can talk to you today about you receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And for the rest of us here this morning, the Lord's trying to bring us back and make sure that all this stuff that we're learning in the book of Revelation is, is doing something in our hearts to where we're longing, loving His appearing in that time when He gets the glory that He deserves. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You this morning for who You are and all that You, you have taught us even this morning from Your glorious book. But Lord, we desperately want to see You do something more than just teach us something and fill our, our minds with knowledge. We want You to do something in our hearts. And, and I pray, first of all, for those that don't know You as their Savior this morning. And I pray that You would speak to their hearts. I pray, Father, You would take the Word of God that has been proclaimed here today. You said that it would be through the foolishness of preaching that men would be saved. And so, Lord, would You take this foolish hour that we've spent together preaching and would You use it to bring people into Your family today. And, oh, Lord, I do pray that in my life, your kingdom would be the only kingdom that matters to me. I pray that it would be a longing in my heart for you to get that glory that you deserve. May I love your appearing. And would you do that for my brothers and sisters that are here today. And may we all look not on the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The eternal things. Help us to live for that day. May it change our motives and our focus that you may be glorified in and, and through us. And again, Lord, please save the lost today. In Jesus' name, amen.